I'll be reading from Psalm 46, verses 1 through 7, and then Isaiah 30. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And Isaiah 15, 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Thank you, Nancy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad that you could be with us as we worship both here and online uh, in the warmth and shelter after that epic storm. It's glad... <laughs> that you braved the weather. Please join me. We'll pray together as we continue in a series this morning looking at uh, covenant in the scriptures. Father, thank you that we can gather here within these walls. And we're mindful, uh, in this season, we're mindful particularly that there's anxiety in many sectors of our world, political, national, emotional, personal, economic, uh, and we pray that uh, you'd meet us as we open the word that you've spoken to us. Would you give us ears to hear? And would your Holy Spirit move among us here in these walls? And may we respond in order that we might leave here as people embodying the covenant hope found in Christ, both receiving from you as children and giving as unconditional lovers. Take us there, we pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. I attended Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo, California Polytechnic, for those who never go south and don't know what that means. Uh, and I studied architecture for a couple of years. My least favorite professor ever is what I'm gonna tell you about here just for a few minutes. Uh, he was a guy who taught one of our, the many drawing classes that we had to take uh, when we were studying architecture. And when we took this particular drawing class, uh, this professor had a, had a reputation as being unkind, unrelational, capricious, judgmental, random, and harsh. And he did not disappoint. Every, like every, so every week we had to do a drawing and we'd scatter throughout San Luis Obispo and draw a residence or a commercial property or a landscape or different things we had to draw. And not different drawings, but different styles. And uh, every week... He'd take one or two students would be trashed every single week. And if, like, if he picked your drawing out for mockery, then you had to do it over the next week. So you had to do two the next week. So you'd do it over and then do the, do the next one as well. And so every week we went in and we were like this. Who's going to fall this week? You know what I mean? Like, who's it going to be? And it, sure enough, it was me once. And what was most annoying is the week that I was trashed, we were supposed to draw like impressionist 
drawings of, of, a res of a house. And I apparently didn't do it well. Other people I could tell spent 10 minutes. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, you know, and he'd stroke his goatee. Profound, you know. And then, and then mine actually looked like a house. And in fact, I worked so hard on it that the sunshine on the white paper made me snowblind for two days. I couldn't see anything. And then I, and then I turned it in. And my, it was that week that mine was chosen for mockery, right? So he puts mine up there. This is just far too linear, far too logical, far too you know, clear. And he just tore it off. He says, Richard, we'll do it again right next week. And I went, I was so mad, right? But all of us, like going into the room, every time, I'll, I'll never forget, as I'm going into that particular classroom, physiologically, my body is changing. Does, do you understand what I mean by that? And some of you understand this uh, because this is how you go to work <laughs> with your employer. Some of you understand because of a particular professor. I hope it's not your marriage that's this way, but it could be. And for some children, home is not a safe place. So the question on the table here is, uh, are relationships safe, right? And in particular, as we gather this morning, the question on the table is, what's your view of God? Is God safe for you? Because how you answer that question determines how you live your life. And God's either good and safe and approachable, or God isn't good and is capricious and random and not to be trusted, or God doesn't exist at all. There's three, there's three paths, uh, and how you answer it, it, it changes your life. And for many of us in the room, God is either good or God is not so good. Or he's, or he's really good, but he's demanding. And that's, in a sense, not good as well. And so there are many doctrines taught in a church like Bethany about the virgin birth, the humanity of Christ, Christ's death on the cross, our sinfulness, all these things. I get it. They're all, they all matter. Nothing matters as much as how you answer this one single question, is God good? How you answer that question will determine how you relate with God and consequently as well, how you relate with other people. So how do you receive that statement, is God good? Do you believe it? And, and then, because you're Christ followers and you're representing the heart of Christ, who is God of the flesh, how do you embody that statement? In other words, do, people are judging the character of God by looking at you as a Christ follower. So, so how do you receive the statement, is God good? How do you embody the statement? And the answer to those questions found in our consideration of God as keeper of a covenant. So we have this ongoing series called Constant, and uh, if you have a little book, you know it's based on kind of a heartbeat kind of thing here that goes like this. And we've been talking about themes in the Bible where we see the heart of God at creation, then we see how things fell apart in what's called disruption, and then there's always a hope found in Christ that leads ultimately to a culmination. So that's, that's the situation. And we're going to look at this same arc this morning through the lens of covenant. And so what, I, what you need to understand at the outset is the difference between a covenant and a contract. So let me just give you very briefly here the difference between covenant and contract. A, a, a contract is transactional and conditional. If you own a house, you have a contract probably with a bank, right? Because you have a loan contract. And I'll just, I don't know if you know this, but your loan is, is 
It's a contract, not a covenant, and it was conditional. And if you want to know if it's conditional or not, just skip a payment. <laughs> and you'll know. I mean, oh, oh, the bank cares immensely about me. They, they're calling me. Not with a robot now, but with a big guy, right? And, and uh, they want something from me. It's a contract. Conditional, transactional. House sale, car sale. When you're six, you're bologna sandwich. It's all contract-based. Covenant, on the other hand, is relational and unconditional. And we don't talk about it much because it's rare in our world. <laughs> but this is what we're going to talk about this morning, covenant. Because we're called, actually, to be people not only living in a covenant relationship with God, but kind of imparting this covenant aura in our relationships horizontally with each other and with the world. So we begin with, you know, God's idea in covenant. And before there was covenant, what you saw in the garden were uh, relationships that were whole. You see a uh, relationship with God, Adam and Eve walking with God, and you see also, this is significant, with each other, it says what? Uh, these two, Adam and Eve, were uh, naked and not ashamed. And the word for naked here, is, it, it embodies more than physical nudity. It talks about, uh, our, like, we're fully known. In other words, Imagine someone knows you perfectly and loves you, even though you're fully known. You're, you're, there's nothing to hide, and, and you're loved completely. That's what's in the garden. And then there's a beautiful relationship as well with the earth, where uh, humans are put in the garden to cultivate and keep. And cultivate has to do with the productivity of the earth, and keep has to do with the sustainability of the earth. And uh, some are into sustainability at the cost of productivity, and some are into productivity at the cost of sustainability. But that's an environmental sermon for a different time. So it was, everything was perfect, right? And, and uh, no shame, no fear, no hiding. And this is the life for which we're made. And there, I hope there are moments in every person's story in the room that embody moments of covenant. Whether with your parents, with spouse, rare, in a rare case, with friends, we see moments of coming. I'll share one or two with you. Uh, when my daughter, Holly, was laying on a trampoline in the backyard, she's probably six years old or so, and her older brother's 10, and her older sister's 11 or 12 or something like that. And so here's Holly, we're laying on the trampoline, and we're looking at clouds go by. Oh, you know, Winnie the Pooh and Mickey Mouse and, you know, the square root of pie. It's all there. So, you know, she's saying these things. Oh, I see this, I see this. And then, th this is what she says. She says, you know, Dad, I think someday uh, Christy and Noah are going to get married and leave. I said, yeah, I think that will happen. And she puts her head on my chest and she says, yeah, but Dad, I'll, I'll never leave you. <laughs> That's what she said. Now, if I could have frozen her right then and kept her at six, it would be beautiful. You know, because it's a moment of perfect, I would just call it perfect intimacy. She trusts me, she loves me, I trust her, I love her. She's now a Cubs fan, if you can imagine. It's gone that far south. <laughs> so last week as a Giants fan, I mean, she married into an Illinois family and, oh, it was a terrible, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> it's a moment of beautiful intimacy. When I graduated from college, some of you were in college, when I graduated from college, my last year, uh, uh, we, 
had some friends that we did a lot, a lot of things together. And we took Marsha out for her birthday. And we drove around Seattle with a blindfold on so she didn't know where we were going. And then we went out to eat. And we went up to Cary Park. If you're local, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it was a windy night. I mean, it was epic wind. Worse than last night, if you can imagine. <laughs> you can imagine such a thing. Worse than last night. And, and uh, windy, but not, not raining. And, and uh, we had one cupcake. We were going to sing her happy birthday. And we'd light a match. And it would just go out instantly. We'd light. So there's four of us. And we gather around the cupcake. And it's very moving, actually. <laughs> we, you know, we light the match inside the little huddle. And so we light the candle, and then we sing happy birthday. Da, da, da. And then when it's done, I mean, normally somebody blows out a candle, and you move on with life. But, you know, Marcia, we just stayed. And she says, I don't want to blow out the candle. Because I know when I blow out the candle, we'll eat the cupcake, and we'll leave and I'm moving to Toronto in three weeks. Beautiful intimacy, gone. So Covenant says, you're made for that kind of intimacy. You're made for that kind of friendship, you're made for that kind of relationship. And when relationships work that way, there are no stress hormones coursing through your body. Imagine, you go to work and you, and you know that your boss is infinitely for you, trusts you completely, imagine such a world. Imagine such a world where you know that uh, with your spouse, you can be completely open and transparent, confess anything, and know you'll be forgiven. Imagine such a world. No fear, no mistrust, no accusing, no assuming the worst, no posturing, just open, giving, and receiving. That's covenant. And, and C.S. Lewis, the author, says that when we have these little tastes of that perfection, that taste is a, is a, is a reminder that we're made for a different world because, hello, that doesn't happen much. But it does happen, and the happening is intended to create a longing in us for something different. And, and those relationships can exist, not perfectly, but in greater measure. But now, in a fallen world, for those relationships to exist, they will require covenant. And so why do they require covenant? They require covenant because of disruption, and disruption happened in the garden uh, when Adam and Eve, you know, violated the... the thing that God said, you know, eat of any tree, but the one in the middle, don't eat of that tree, and the day you eat of that, you die, etc., etc. God is doing that so that humanity won't be, you know, automatons or robots pre-programmed, but that they will have free choice because that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. I can't love without choosing to love. Otherwise, if you've seen the movie Stepford Wives, that's not love, right? So I can't love without choosing to love, and the only way I can choose to love is to have a choice not to love. That's the garden. And there are many reasons, but humanity chooses uh, disobedience. And as soon as they choose disobedience, you see it in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what happens. I choose disobedience and I run. I run from God. It says Adam, ran, it says Adam went and, and he ran from God. And then, and then I hide. Adam hid from God. He hears God's voice and he runs and hides. And then when confronted, rather than confession, he blames. He blames God. And he, he doesn't blame God ever directly, but God asks the parties, right? Remember Adam and Eve. He says uh, of, of, to Adam, he says, did you, eat the, did you eat from the tree? And what's his first word? I mean, there's a, this is a simple question. Yes or no? Did you eat a tree? Uh, the woman you gave me, she bugged me, she wore me down, and I ate. Yeah. So thanks, God, for Eve. Don't get mad. It's in the Bible. Then he speaks to Eve. 
did you eat? Well, the serpent who somebody left in the garden, I mean, yeah, deceived me and I ate. So thanks God for the serpent running, hiding, blaming. So what happens is immediately God enters into this thing called covenant where the intensely relational, infinitely loving God begins to pursue us and makes these, these, these promises that are unconditional. So there's a covenant with Adam that we'll look at very briefly. There's a covenant with Noah that we'll look at briefly. There's a covenant with Abraham that we'll look at briefly. Uh, and a covenant with Moses. And all of these ultimately are pointing in different ways toward Christ, as, as we'll see. So here's a covenant with, Abraham, uh, with Adam. God, it begins with God seeking Adam. And God is seeking Adam when Adam is running and hiding in the garden. God is seeking Adam <clears throat> for the purpose of restoration. And this is, this is central uh, to the notion of the Adamic covenant. When God is after you, it's, ne- it's never to destroy you. God is after you uh, to restore you to the life for which you were created. That's the nature of God. God wants to restore you. It's, but it's in our nature because we, like we, uh, Romans 4 says that we, all of us, have inherited from Adam, Adam's nature. It's in our nature to run from God, and then God will pursue us. Does this, does this make sense? So I, why do I run from God? Guilt, shame, fear. Because I have a distorted view of God, I think, oh yeah, once God meets me, God will destroy me. <laughs> that was Peter after denying Christ again. He's like this, I'm done, I'm a failure, I'm going fishing. But God pursues. This is the Adamic covenant, God pursuing us always with a view towards restoration, always. Some of you have been around for a while, so forgive me for the redundancy. But you know, one of my favorite stories from my childhood is um, waiting for my dad to pick me up to go to a baseball game where I'm going to pitch, and I'm warming up, and I throw a ball through a giant picture window in the living room, just as, you know, just as dad's car is pulling in the driveway. Now, if I were unfallen, maybe I wouldn't have broken the window, but that's a different thing. But if I were unfallen, like, uh, if, I, if I had a confidence, then I would have stood at the door, and when dad opened the door, I would have just said, man, I broke the window, I'm so, so sorry. Do I do that? Absolutely not. Like as soon as I hear dad's footsteps, I run into the bedroom, I lock the door, I co- like I cover my head with a pillow and I'm bawling because I know that once he finds, he'll see the window and a baseball spinning in the glass. I can't even lie my way out of this. I know I'm done. And so I, I run and hide. That, it's in our nature to do that. But it's in God's nature and the nature, I would say, of a good father to pursue. So here's dad. He comes, knocks the door. Open the door. No, go away. I know I'm grounded until I'm 25. I know. Just leave. Yeah. No, open the door now. And my dad's mad at me. And and I'm I'm afraid as soon as I open the door, what's he going to do? And he opens the door. Uh, Excuse me. I open the door. And then he comes in. And then there's this beautiful moment where he says, you know it was wrong. And he says, you'll have to pay for it. And then I'm really sobbing because I go, I'm 12. I can't buy the window. What am I going to do? Well, you know, and he makes a plan. We're going to, you know, mow the lawn as a dollar and do this and this. And he says, don't worry about it. It's going to be paid for, and you'll learn never to do this again. But right now, I want you to put your uniform on. You're going to go, and you're going to pitch. And I said, what? 
No, no, you're going to kill me. That's what I thought was going to happen in here. No, no, you're going to go, you're going to pitch. Why? Because you're my son and I'm proud of you and I love you. I'll never forget it. That's the gospel. And I'm sad to say that some of you have failed and met at the hands of either a parent or an employer or God forbid though it's happened, the church and you've been met with nothing but rejection. And this creates a culture in, in this very room at times, a culture of duplicity and hypocrisy. We're afraid to confess because we're afraid of judgment. There should be no fear of judgment because we forgive each other as God has forgiven us. God is seeking restoration. That's the Adamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah because uh, he says in Genesis 8.22, for the rest of time, this is what God says, for the rest of time, there will be seasons. Summer, winter, springtime, harvest. There'll be a, you'll see a rainbow in the sky. That'll be a reminder I'll never again destroy the earth. I'll provide for you. And listen, I'll provide for you whether the Republicans or Democrats are in power. There's still going to snow. Water's still going to come down in the, in the earth. There'll still be water coming out of that fountain there because I, I, I'm relentlessly committed to, to provision. I'll provide for you, uh, even though there's terror <laughs> and racism and fear. Even though we mess it up so badly, the sun still rises. The earth still provides for us because God provides for us. That's the Noahic covenant. It's given to everyone, whether you believe or not, that God even exists. You're the recipient of this covenant. God's good to all of us. Because when it says, when it says in uh, uh, Matthew that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the, uh, the unjust, don't think like a Southern California there and think that that's a curse. When God causes the rain to fall, it's because God is blessing the earth. So there'll be flowers and bounty. I, there was a friend at Cal Poly who was a kind of a burnt out Vietnam vet when I was studying architecture. And he lived in a van and he ran in the foothills. And, and he used my dorm room because we were friends for, uh, to shower. And he came in one day, he came in one day, and uh, he's laying on my bed, he's listening to John Denver, which I confess to you, I had a stack of John Denver albums, that's why, you know, deep, dark thing. And, and uh, so, he's listening, he's listening to John Denver, uh, laying on the bed, and I said, man, like, you're always listening to John Denver when I come in here. <laughs> why John Denver? He goes, because his, the words of his song songs, the words of his songs, remind me that the world is beautiful. Whatever, you like John never don't, but I believe it's true. Sunshine on my shoulders does make me happy, right? And God does fill up my senses like a night in a forest. And I can just sit, as you know, and watch the trees dripping the moisture from heaven and be reminded of this one thing, God is good. Where does that come from? The Noahic covenant. Because God could have just as easily said, hey, let me show you, uh, you know, how bad you are. Rain, done. Abraham. God promises to Abraham that uh, there would be a people who God would bless so that they could be a blessing, and that being a blessing is called being fruitful. I'll bless you, so you'll be a blessing. 
I'll bless you so you'll be a blessing. And, and you'll bear fruit. Through you will flow unconditional love and joy and generosity and peace. That was God's intent with the covenant made with Abraham. So, and a significant moment in history occurs in the covenant with Abraham because this covenant is predicated on Abraham having children and he's an old man and he's not having any children. And so he says, how will I know that this is going to happen in Genesis 15? And then uh, when covenants are made in the Old Testament, a covenant is always sealed because both parties make unconditional promises. Not conditions, not a contract. Unconditional promises. This is, by the way, a wedding is the same thing. Unconditional promises. And then, uh, and then an animal has been sacrificed and, and the pieces are laid on the ground and both parties walk between the pieces. That's a covenant. So the, the beauty of Genesis 15 is God makes the covenant. I will bless you. You will be fruitful. I will give you the land. You will be a blessing. And then God walks between the pieces and says to Abraham, I'm paraphrasing, but God basically says, that's it. Only one party walks. Why? Because Abraham, there's nothing, nothing for you to do other than with an empty hand receive. That's the covenant that God has made. And is that good news for you? Absolutely, because Romans 4 says that you're a child of Abraham. And so you, you are the recipient of an unconditional covenant given to you by God. God is relentlessly, infinitely, unconditionally for you. I wish you'd say amen or something, because that is maybe the most important thing you'll ever hear. No parent will be that perfectly. No spouse will be that perfectly. But God is that. And then Moses... God makes a covenant with Moses, an interesting covenant. It's the covenant of the law. And some of you Bible scholars in the room are like this. This is not a covenant because it's conditional. If you obey, blessed. If you disobey, cursed. Can I just tell you? No, you're wrong. <laughs> this is completely unconditional. What God is saying here is because I unconditionally love you, I love you enough not to remain silent when you're destroying yourself through disobedience. So, so when you obey, the, here's the carrot, blessing. But when you disobey, I still love you just as much, here's the stick. And everyone in the room knows this if you're a parent, right? The worst thing you do as a parent is be completely passive. Oh, yeah, well, you know, whatever. Go ahead. You know, eat Reese's peanut butter cups for every meal. Yeah, pretend the, the hot wood stove is a piano. Let's just see what happens. No. <laughs> like if you love a child, you intervene because you know the consequences of not intervening will be worse. That's the, that's the covenant of the law. Because I love you, there'll be consequences for disobedience. And God does it that way so that we'll seek God. I do my own thing, my life implodes, I turn back to Christ. Been in my story a few times, maybe yours as well. And one of the least talked about covenants in the Old Testament is a covenant that God makes with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is where we find the most profound hope of all because in Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Not, and it's not like any of these. All of these point to Christ. Christ restores, Christ sustains, Christ blesses, Christ makes us fruitful. Uh, Christ enables us to embody the character of God the way the law would have had we obeyed it. So all of these point to Christ. But Jeremiah 31, uh, this is just an amazing covenant because what he says here that's so significant, beginning in verse 31, is this. Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
It's a new covenant, not like any other covenant. And here's what makes it new. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my law within them, not now on tablets of stone, but I'll write the law on the heart, and they will never again teach each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, no, the Lord, everyone will know me. Everyone will know me. Why? Because watch this. This is huge. I will forgive their iniquity <clears throat> and their sin I will remember. And then, boy, underline in your Bible, their sin I will remember what? No more. Oh, that's not how I live my life. This is how I view God. Your sin I will remember only on your very worst days. And then I'll, co- I'll come, I'll meet you on your pillow and heap it on. Oh, yeah, you failed today, but let, re- let me remind you about that time when you were 13. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, there's, this is God. Your sin I will remember what? No more. In the Old Testament, under all these covenants, there was this picture of sin being covered over by blood. And you can argue why. It's not the point this morning. But, but there was, you know, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of lambs. And there's these sacrifices. And priests had, they dipped their toe in blood and their ear in blood, all this stuff, all this blood. But the word in the Old Testament was atone. Your sin is covered. Your sin is atoned. Now, we come to the New Testament. And in, this, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, 1 John chapter 2 says, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, which means not a covering. God, Christ does not cover your sin. Christ takes away your sin. Uh, this is John the Baptist, who the very first time he sees Jesus, what does he, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. This is a lamb. There will be a sacrifice. This is a lamb. But this is the lamb who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Man, that's good news. Our hope is articulated for us if you're into Bible reading, most clearly in the book of Hebrews, actually. And so uh, let me just read in Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews 10. I'm going to read, begin, I'll be, begin reading in verse 19, and I'll unpack it a little bit for you. Therefore, friends... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let me just stop. We'll just stop right there. What does this mean, confidence to enter the holy place? Well, if you know in the Old Testament, uh, there was a tabernacle and a temple. And in both cases, as you saw a couple of weeks ago, the glory of God resided spatially on what's called the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that Ark actually resided in a, in a place called the Holy of Holies, and no one could enter into it to be in the presence of God. No one could enter other than the high priest, and then only once a year. And the only way you could enter in was through this veil. There's a veil preventing anyone from entering in. So that's the situation. But this is what it says. But now, in this new covenant, we, all of us, we, everyone, has confidence to enter the holy place. All of us have confidence. And how can we enter the holy place? Watch this. By a new and living way which Christ inaugurated through us, uh, for us through the veil. What veil? Well, if you remember, if you know your like, Easter Sunday school stuff, like on Good Friday when Jesus says, you know, it is finished, he's hanging on the cross, what happened to the veil that was guarding the Holy of Holies? What happened to it? Does anyone know? It's torn in two. It's ripped, supernaturally torn in two. But now watch, this is, isn't this amazing? Watch this now. This, I love this. So we enter a holy place by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil which is his flesh. 
So, like, how was the physical veil able to be torn in two so that everyone can be living in the presence of God's glory? How did that happen? Because Christ's flesh was broken. So that's why Jesus, on that Passover meal, said, you know, in the past there's been a lamb for this meal, and there's been unleavened bread, but he says, in breaking the bread, he says, this, this bread, this is my body. This is my body right here. And the blood that is needed for sacrifice, you know, we drink wine to kind of remember that blood. This, this is my blood now. This is my blood. Behold the Lamb of... So here's John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what Hebrews 10 then says is this. Since we have now confidence to be in the presence of God by a new and living way, and since we have a great high priest of the house of God, verse 22 says this. Draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. Do you know what sincere heart means? It means you're naked when you come before God. That's sincere heart. Sincere. Without wax in Latin. It means you're not hiding anything. You come to God with all your scars, all your doubts, all your fears, all your shame, all your failure, all your hope, all your joy. You can approach God naked. But this is the, this is the beautiful irony of this passage. Sincere with full assurance. There's no one with whom I feel like I could be naked and enjoy full assurance. Not that naked. That's our invitation. So we're invited to draw near to God. When? Well, this is offered to us, this draw near kind of exhortation is offered to us in a way that tells us in the, in the, in the Greek language that it's an ongoing, like it's just all the time, draw near to God. Draw near when you're great, grateful. Draw near when you're concerned. Draw near when you're angry. Draw near when you're wrestling. Draw, draw near. Draw near at all times. That's the invitation we have as children of God. This is why Jesus said, he said an interesting thing. He said, look, unless, unless you repent and become as children you won't be able to experience the profound, life-changing power of the kingdom of God. Repent and become as children. What did he mean, become as children? All of you have children. I mean, you, you know, one of the most beautiful things about children is they feel no need ever to repay. Right? <laughs> and it actually is a beautiful thing. No, I have no, there's no need to repay. We had a granddaughter living with us for six or seven months. And, uh, she, I mean, she couldn't talk, but even if she could, like, she wouldn't say, oh, you know, thanks for changing my diaper. Can I do the dishes? <laughs> Just as a way of showing gratitude. No, 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 you know, it's, it's a diaper, and it's another diaper, and it's a bath, and it's a sweater, and it's a backpack, and it's a jogging stroller and it's a baby monitor, and it's bags of diapers, and it's getting up in the middle of the night, and it's breastfeeding, and it's tears, and it's thankless, literally thankless, and you do it with great joy. Why? Because you're embodying in that great joy nothing less than the father heart of God and the mother heart of God. You're, you're the covenant maker in the moment. 
But the child is also embodying our calling. Unless you become his children. So what does that mean for my relationship with God? It means uh, a long time ago, I stopped trying to show God that I was worthy of any love. Worthy to do what I do every Sunday. Worthy of receiving any blessings. I stopped a long time ago. Why? Because I know I'm not worthy. I'm a child with messes and fears. And God is for me anyway. That's a covenant. So all of us in the room, uh, we'd be wise to learn how to live with empty hands and receive as children. In a moment, we'll have a response. And the question on the table, one of the questions on the table this morning is, what do you need to receive from God today? Do you, do, I mean, do you need direction? <laughs> do you need uh, provision? Do you need intimacy? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need strength? Because you're spinning eight balls and you don't know how you're going to do it. Come to God. It's the only way you come to know God and experience as who God is. So that's the first thing. I need to receive on an ongoing basis. Draw near. And then here's the other thing. All of us in the room who call ourselves Christ followers, we're called to embody that same message of like, we are the presence of Jesus for others, so let's get out of contractual relationships and get onto the ground of unconditional love. I can't tell you how many people are no longer in communities of faith, no longer walking with God. Why? Because God's people gave them the hammer in God's name, and it was wrong. For a, for a marriage failure, for a broken relationship, for a sexual identity, choice or not choice, for an abortion, no. Not here, I hope and pray. You're the presence of Christ. Unconditional, infinite, matchless love. We need to receive it so that we can give it. These books up here, prayer books, are, this morning we're just kind of filling with prayers. God, I need from you. And so come as a child and receive. What do you need from God today? You need restoration with a child, relationship with a parent, strength, forgiveness, whatever. You can write a little I need prayer and just receive for a moment. Or with our prayer team members, pray. And then go out as people of hope, having received that you might give. Let's worship together.